0: This podcast covers all things health, your body, your brain, and your well-being. Each week we'll be joined by doctors as well as the occasional guest to talk about the health topics that mean the most to you.
1: Now today we're going to be talking about a difficult and distressing subject, sexual abuse in children. I think I probably speak for a lot of us when I say that I hope that this is something that I'm never going to be faced with, But I'm also aware that as potentially the first professional that has knowledge of the abuse, my initial response and input could make a huge difference to that child's psychological and physical well-being. So I do think that it's hugely important that we have the tools and knowledge to know what to do when we have a child in front of us, and it has become evident for whatever reason that that child has been the victim of sexual abuse. So I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr Bryony Arrowsmith, I was a medical student with Bryony more years ago than I care to remember now. After medical school, Bryony went on to train as a paediatrician and she has always had a keen interest in community paediatrics and safeguarding. She is now a consultant paediatrician at The Haven, the sexual assault referral centre in London. And so she's very well placed to advise and guide me through the considerations and decisions involved in the initial management of these children and what is expected of us in primary care. So welcome, Bryony, and thank you very much for taking the time to record this podcast with me. No problem. So I guess the first question I'd be interested to understand is how might the abuse become evident to us? How might it present to us in
2: primary care? Well, there are a number of ways that sexual abuse may present to a GP. There might be a direct disclosure to you from a parent or um, from the child, or a parent may come to you to ask for advice about what to do next after they've... Um, discovered the abuse a child might present to you with or you may diagnose a sexually transmitted infection pregnancy or a genital injury or it may actually be very vague symptoms like recurrent abdominal pain recurrent urinary tract infections or vulvovaginitis new onset nocturnal enuresis headaches deliberate self-harm or depression so just lots of different ways that's really interesting. So a wide variety of presentations
1: from from a forthright disclosure to much, much more vague and unexplained symptoms. And I guess with those vague physical symptoms, it's just important to remember to keep abuse as a potential differential. Absolutely, yeah. So, so once that be- abuse has become evident or disclosed, I think for a lot of us, there's going to be a concern about not making the situation worse, trying not to say the wrong thing and, and trying to make sure that the child and the family feel safe in their disclosure. So do you have any tips on what we should say in this
2: situation? I think in the most part, actually, you probably don't need to say very much. It's really important to listen and to document carefully what you're being told when there is a disclosure. If the presentations are more, less clear cut, it is important to just be open and not to lead the child in what they're saying. Phrases that are quite useful are things like, tell me more about that, or is there anything worrying you? Is there anyone that frightens you? Has anyone asked you to keep a secret or have you got any secrets there that are worrying you or is there anything that you want to talk to me about?
1: Fantastic. So really time and space for the child to be able to speak and using open and non-leading questions. And I guess it's also really important that the, the child or the family feel believed in what they're telling you as well. Yes, very much. Fantastic. Okay. And so then once we've got a grasp on what's happening and the child or the family have told us everything that they're happy to disclose, this is obviously not information that we're going to keep to ourselves. So who do we need to tell? Who do we need to disclose to? Should we be speaking to social services or the police, for example?
2: So if there has been a disclosure directly to you, first and foremost, you do need to contact Children's Social Care. So your local MASH team or equivalent um, service, they have different names across the country, I'm sure, and complete a written referral. And if the child is under 13, you also need to call the police. When a child is over 13, you still need to inform Children's Social Care. But the child can consent or not to you informing the police. So once they hit 13, they actually get a little bit more say in what happens to them. All practices should have a named doctor for safeguarding who you should be able to contact um, for support and to offer advice. And depending on the provision in your area, you might be able to speak to the SARC directly for advice. But usually it's the police who would be the ones arranging the forensic medical examination with the SARC rather than a medical professional doing that. Okay. So so as you say, first
1: and foremost, social services, and presumably they can then guide us by advising how and when they're going to make contact and helping to decide those initial questions of the child's immediate safety. So for example, are they safe to go home or, or do they need to go to a place of safety?
0: We'll be back after a quick break.
2: Here is a quick word from our sponsor.
0: Go get a load of that happiness because happiness is healthy as we know it. Join us every week as we continue to provide you the best of health and fitness wellness updates from around the globe. Enjoy the show. And now, back to our episode.
2: Yes, absolutely.
1: And and it's interesting that you say we contact the police if the child is under the age of 13 and then over the age of 13 we can contact the police with the child's consent as i think i'd always assumed that the police would always be involved in cases of sexual abuse and um, involving a child and presumably this differentiation is not due to a question of consent to the sexual activity this is abuse and therefore non-consensual but but more to do with having the capacity to to decide what happens to them afterwards
2: yes i mean so under the age of 13 there is never a decision for the child to make, because they don't have capacity to consent for any form of sexual activity, and so that the age that sort of age cutoff comes in where. They then get more of a say because of their capacity. So you will have children who are over the age of 13 who you deem not to have the capacity to make decisions. And that is uh, that comes into it just as you may have adults who don't have the capacity to make certain decisions. Um, but under the age of 13, children are not deemed to be able to consent to any form of sexual activity. Over the age of 13, there are circumstances within which the police are not going to be involved if the Activity, sexual activity, is deemed to be consensual. Um, however, obviously, as you said, we aren't talking about consensual sexual activity. We're talking about um, rape um, and sexual assault. So, but they still maintain that element of choice. Now, if you make us a, a referral to MASH, then there is going to be a strategy meeting. W- And in that situation, the police are going to have a level of knowledge about what has happened. But whether you call the police directly um, is up to the young person or can be up to the young person. Some social care departments will tell you you have to, but one must always bear in mind that there are more factors at play for that young person. And the decision to call the police Is not always in their best interest or isn't always keeping them safe. And for some young people, it's about time, it's about telling, disclosing to police within a time frame that suits them in a place that suits them when they've had chance to tell their parents for example so there's lots of factors that come into it and it's a complex decision but children's social care there's never any question about um and then the police there is is a, is a slightly greyer area and a young person who is over the age of 13 can choose to not have police involvement
1: That's really interesting. Thank you for clarifying that. And can I just ask, does that need to inform the police change depending on the perpetrator of the abuse? So, for example, if there are other children at risk or if the perpetrator was in a position of power, does that decision remain the decision of the victim, provided they're over the age of 13, or can that consent be overruled to protect
2: others? So this sort of, in a way, comes under the public interest law, and this is not exclusive to sexual abuse. This is across the board. There are certain situations where it is deemed um, okay or acceptable, I think is a better word, to override a patient's confidentiality in the public interest. For example, gunshot wounds that come into A&E, those sorts of things. And the GMC have some very clear guidance about the circumstances within which you can consider overriding patient confidentiality to inform the police. If the alleged perpetrator is in a position of authority within social care, there's also a a team called the Lado, um, who are involved in investigating professionals. Um, so there may be situations where that decision you may want to challenge that decision, um, or then see. The but you also can can try to safeguard those other pe- other people without overriding the consent. Um, If there are situations where perhaps this is um, a stranger assault, somebody's been pulled off the street and you are concerned from that level of public interest, sometimes the police may process the samples anonymously. So then they don't know who the samples have been taken from and they don't have the information. But then it's used to see if that DNA matches somebody that they already have on their system or matches other crimes. And then they, the police may then come back to the sexual assault referral centre to see if they can ask the person if they would be able to speak to them um, anonymously or off the record, as it were, to find out a little bit more information. Um, But that is something that, you know, the person can say no to. So, yes, there are going to always be caveats to that, you know, it's up to you. But also, I think it's important to remember as a, a doctor in primary care, what they do there and then isn't actually necessarily their overriding final decision. And it may be that it's too overwhelming to involve the police at that time, because we have to remember that for that the police are not always viewed in a positive light. Um, they are not always deemed to be protective. Um, and the thought of involving the police could just be too much at that point. And that's why I would say your absolute bottom line is children's social care, because then you're looking at safeguarding and um keeping in and then and, and an investigation starting and then there are going to be opportunities further down the line to disclose to the police if that's what that young person wants to do or can do with support and definitely where I work in the Haven, we have um, SOIT appointments. So the SOIT team are the sexual offences investigation team, and they will meet with a person anonymously um, to discuss the process of what happens reporting a crime, um, such as rape or sexual assault. Um, and then they can, people sometimes after that appointment will decide to report having Not wanted to report beforehand. And sometimes people still make the decision not to report um, because obviously it's such an intimate crime. um, It can be very difficult to speak of um, and the implications of speaking out can be very wide reaching. Absolutely. And I think I can fully understand that, particularly in that kind of acute
1: phase, it must seem very overwhelming to then start talking to to police and, and other people involved. You probably don't want to be going down that line straight away. And it's good to know that that decision that they make then and there doesn't necessarily have to be their final decision. It is something that they can change their mind about later on. Absolutely. Fantastic. So I guess the next thing I'd like to understand is what, if any, physical health concerns do we need to be aware of or act on in primary care? Particularly, I guess, at that initial consultation, do we need to be thinking about, for example, emergency contraception or hepatitis B immunizations, post-exposure
2: prophylaxis? So absolutely, yeah. I think if a child is post-pubertal or even peripubertal, then emergency hormonal contraception is vital. It's the one most useful thing that can be done at that very early stage to prevent a pregnancy. Hepatitis B vaccination um, should, should be offered if you have that, um, because if you give it within 24 hours of an assault, you can sort of retrospectively cover that assault as it were um, with the vaccination. Um, going after that it's a good opportunity to offer the vaccination to people Um, as we know it's now in the routine vaccination schedule for um, children born, born after 2017 so that will become less and less relevant as that cohort of children grow up but it's a useful one to to offer. Um, HIV post-exposure prophylaxis is an important consideration and one you might need to get advice on as it sort of depends on the type of assault and also what is known about the alleged assailant and their HIV status, for example. Now, most people in the UK now know their HIV status and will have an undetectable viral load if they're HIV positive. Um, And if you have an undetectable viral load, it's almost impossible or it is impossible to transmit HIV. The risk of the type of assault is variable, so with anal assaults or assaults resulting in injury being higher risk, for example, than vaginal rape or digital penetration. Other than that, sexually transmitted infections would be checked for further down the line, but you should also consider that they may have injuries that might need assessment.
1: Okay, And, and in that situation where there are injuries, is the physical health of the child kind of paramount and our priority rather than Absolutely. concern about forensic
2: evidence? So always physical health is the priority. So forensic will always take forensic sampling and DNA collection will always take second place to physical health. So if a child presents to you with a horrible case of vulva vagination vaginitis that is really sore then you should absolutely take a look as you usually would and offer treatment as you usually would and not let this uh, the sort of the con- the forensic side of things stop you doing treating that child's medical needs if you're concerned it's perfectly reasonable to ring and speak to the SARC and find out what they advise you to do and our advice is always to treat the medical problem. So if you come to see us, we don't have the capacity to write you a prescription for thrush or any of those things. So that d- is always the priority. And there are things that you can do that if you need to, for example, in A&E, if there is somebody is bleeding heavily and you need to do a speculum for an, a much older teen, then that speculum can be taken and in, and, and sort of examined for evidence and DNA instead of the, the initial swabs being used. So there are things that can mitigate m- medical necessity, but medical, prior- medical needs and treatment come first. And I think it's really good to have that clarification. I think in the past, maybe I would have been
1: concerned about damaging a, a forensic investigation. And it, it sounds so obvious when you say it, Briony, but I find it deeply reassuring to be reminded that as a doctor, the patient and their immediate health should be my focus and my priority. So, so thank you for that. Totally, yeah. Okay. So I wonder if you'd mind just going on to explain a little bit about the role of the sexual assault referral centres,
2: such as such as the Haven that you work in, and, and what happens when a child attends? Well, so I think there is going to be regional variation um, between what is provided by your local sexual assault referral centre. Um, some places... Um, don't see under 13s at all. Um, Some will see under 13s in working hours only. So I think the haven is relatively unusual. We, um, in offering a a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week on-call paediatrician, and I'm basing that on some sort of audit work I have done and also the fact of the areas that we cover out of hours. But I'm sure we're not the only SARC that do do that. In the Haven, we have sort of two types of assessment really after an allegation of sexual abuse or assault. There are the urgent time critical assessments, which are forensic medical examinations where the child or young person is seen and examined and samples are collected for DNA retrieval. Or we have a non-acute child sexual abuse medical where a child is examined for an injury or for changes in the genital appearance that could indicate acute or healed injuries. CSA medical can also be an opportunity to do a sexual health screen and a pregnancy test if appropriate. Forensic medical examinations where you're collecting DNA need to be completed within a certain time frame and this is referred to as a forensic window and that's based on your pubertal status and the type of the assault. Now this is all on the um, FFLM which is a faculty of forensic and legal medicine website. They have some very clear guidance on forensic windows and what swabs are needed and how to swab but generally speaking in pre-pubertal children the time frame is varies between 48 to 72 hours depending on the assault and in post-pubertal children it can be up to seven days after a vi- vaginal rape but again anal assaults are um, 72 hours so there are many considerations in many considerations in this situation so it's worth discussing with the SAG if you're unsure of when the assault might have taken place and advocating to the social worker and to police to consider this and that they they should themselves speak to this arc, Um, not every child that is discussed will be seen. And there are usually many discussions around what is in the best interest of this child regarding the timeframes of the examination, where they're going to be taken And I would always say to people is, if you feel an examination is needed, but hasn't been done, it's completely okay to ask why, because there should be a reason. I mean, I would like to say there will be a reason, (laughs) but um, I would, you know, absolutely, there should be a reason that you can be given as to why this examination hasn't gone ahead. Um, And I think it's really important to remember that Also, an examination doesn't give you a categorical answer on whether or not abuse has taken place. There can be penetrative abuse and a normal examination and you can have abnormalities on an examination that are nothing to do with abuse. It's much more likely that the examination after abuse will be normal and safeguarding decisions can't be based purely on that examination. It's a part of the picture and the assessment that goes on around a child to try and understand what has happened to them um, over or around this, the time of the abuse and assault. Brilliant. So as you say, and you're
1: involved in that initial examination's forensic details and you mentioned that you might be involved in STI and pregnancy testing as well. But you mentioned something in our discussions when we were planning this podcast which surprised me and that's that you don't actually prescribe in, in referral centres.
2: I think, again, that probably depends on the sexual assault referral center, but the majority are not based in a hospital. Um, So you have limited access. We have for adults, we have some availability of medication and we can prescribe HIV post-exposure prophylaxis. But it would be difficult to prescribe something that we didn't have in our cupboard, as it were. So we have a drugs cupboard where, you know, our hepatitis vaccinations, the HIV PEP packs. Um, There are some antibiotics. I think there is some trimethoprim or, you know, a couple of very basic things. But for the children, obviously, with your dosing, you you don't end up getting that right. Um, And for anything sort of usual... That you might prescribe very easily within GP, we won't necessarily have access to, and we couldn't send them to a, a pharmacy with a prescription. Um, I think the other thing to remember is that most sexual assault referral centres are not a part of a hospital or on the site of a hospital, so they can't. We can't manage acutely unwell people, um, and so um, at the Havens and I'm sure other SARCs are the same. We sometimes go into place other places to do a forensic examination so we call them a grab bag where we take all of our stuff and go and do as much of an assessment as we can and gather as much evidence as we can on site so I've done one on pediatric intensive care they've we've done them we do them in mental health institutions they've done for the adult side service they've done in prisons you know there's lots of different places that we will go to to do the examination if somebody is unstable and cannot be brought to us.
1: Fantastic. And I I guess that just highlights, again, the importance of thinking about things like um, uh, emergency contraception, things like that, at
2: that initial consultation, when we see them in primary care, so there isn't a delay. Yes, I think that's really important. And I always say this to people, and sometimes it can be misunderstood when you first hear it, is that sometimes things happen that mean that that young person doesn't end up going to the SARC. They can change their mind. The police can change their mind. Um, other things come into place. And and actually for, for the older young people within our service, if a younger child is needs to be seen, they will be prioritized. So our under-13s are prioritized um, because of the shorter time with forensic window and also just their age. Um, So things can happen that mean that it's put out. And if you think you have seven days within which to collect DNA after a vaginal assault, then, you know, that's a long time to be waiting for your emergency contraception. So if you have somebody in front of you, try and get in as much as you can from that perspective, because you don't know what time and what else might happen in between times that might change what the outcome of when they're seen.
1: That's great. Thank you for clarifying that. So I think that kind of covers the the immediate care of the child who we should be informing and and thinking about their physical health needs. So then I'm just interested to know what might be available in terms of ongoing psychological support for the child and and maybe their family as
2: well. And I think again, um, this will very much depend on the area you work in. Your local SARC would be able to advise you as to what is available in your area because often services are provided by the third sector the NSPCC and Barnardo's are sort of big players <laughs> in the field as it were of support emotional support for young people um, after sexual abuse and assault at the Havens we do have our own um, children and young people psychology service um, where people can be re- young people can be referred in we also have adult services as well but I'm um, thinking just about the children and there are your local cam service but obviously we know that often the waiting lists are very long because they services are so overstretched. And there are some national charities. I think the main ones to mention is MOSAC, which provides support for families that was initially set up by families who had experienced um, sexual abuse. It stands for mothers of sexually abused children, but it's actually for any non-abusing parent of a child who's been sexually abused. Um, And there's also um, RASAC and NAPAC, um, which are both sort of organisations that support people after they've been abused, um, I have. We will put some, some a few links um, for people to explore, um, and that they can, um, you can take it from there. Uh, but there are also other other services um, in London. It's quite borough dependent, even. Um, so some boroughs will sign up for certain services. Um, some boroughs don't. Um, so it's just very variable. Okay. So it's probably worth um, some of our listeners just having a look and seeing what's available in
1: their in their areas. But I'll put a link, as you say, to the, to those ones that you've mentioned um, in the show notes for this podcast. Brilliant. And so my final question, Bryony, is really just to ask what support is there for maybe for primary care clinicians or any other professionals who have been involved in the care of children who have suffered with abuse and maybe distressed by what they've witnessed or heard?
2: I mean, I think it's really important to remember that it is upsetting, it is distressing, it's horrible for the child, and it's horrible for the people who have to hear about it. Um, And so you need to be kind to yourself. It's okay to be upset by these things. They are very challenging, as with all safeguarding. Um, I think the first port of call, if you're a trainee, is your trainer. Um, If you're not a trainee, your colleagues, your safeguarding lead... And if it's sort of overstepping from that, That sort of field of sort of peer support within your practice then there are obviously practitioner health services as well occupational health services which can can offer you more professional support because they are as I said they are extremely challenging and draining um, and difficult to manage so it is important to to look after yourself as well because otherwise you can't look after your patients effectively and as a GP you will be having an ongoing relationship with these families that you will be supporting them through some very challenging times because there is this massive uh, response when an allegation or a disclosure is made and you know our families often describe it as a sort of a bomb going off in the middle of their life but you will as their primary care physician be present as that settles down and as all of the professionals that have come in for the assessment step away Um, so it is important that you are sort of mindful of your own health and resilience in order to continue supporting these families who will continue to need support on many levels. And I have to say that we will often say to parents, don't forget, you can go to your own GP for support. So there's lots there that, you know, if a child has told you, you're likely to have some contact with the parents, they may all be registered with you um, in the practice. So that's going to be, uh, you know, not a long-term support need not a a short thing at all
1: yeah absolutely well very wise words well once again thank you very much brianie for discussing these topics with me today no problem Um, it feels really good to have a better understanding of the primary care role and also to understand more about the invaluable work that you do
2: this will conclude the episode thanks for tuning in if you like what you hear please leave a comment and subscribe thank you